Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 147, and we're interviewing Anuska H. How are you doing this morning? Or actually, I should say this afternoon for you, Anuska. Yeah, it's evening over in England here. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing, time. Yeah, I'm doing quite good. Um, been a bit pessimistic with being poorly, but um, I always find a positive in a day, whichever outcome, you know, there's always positives in every angle. So I kind of live by that and I do a gratitude list in the morning. So, you know, even if I feel rubbish within myself, there's still a good day ahead of me. Yeah, so I start my day off with med- meditation. So I start my day off quite well. That's great. Meditation helps a lot. Yeah. I know it helps me a lot. I haven't meditated in a while, but it was something that helped me heavily. Yeah, definitely. It's made me a calmer person for sure. Um, Yeah, it totally does. For some reason, just, well, like you said, it starts your day off right. Yeah, and and, and believe it or not, breathing should be like naturally, but I think sometimes we don't breathe correct. And it's learned me to breathe a lot easier because I'm quite a fast, and now I'm slowing it down, you know, and, and just like being present in the room and, and connecting with the universe. Yeah, just That's, being there in the being there in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes I do it at night time, not religiously or anything, but uh, depending on like if I, if there's anything that stresses me out before bedtime, be it a kid, one of your kids playing up or something, I will then practice it then at night. But yeah, I have a routine of meditation working out and then that's my day set up that's great so let's dive yeah. in and get started here i was telling okay. you before my number one question to everybody is tell me about your childhood how was it oh, it it was shit it was good in the moment <laughs> that was quick no, it was shit. Look, look, looking back at it though no it was because my first memory was the first day at school Second memory was me. Wait, what was the first memory? My first day at school. So I remember going, my mum taking me to school and the school had railings and I'm like literally gripping onto the railings, like, I don't want to go crying and, and pretending that, that this ball in the field that had gone through the railing was more important and I wasn't moving without it. Um, so I remember that very clearly. And then the next one is quite a deep memory. Um, and so my mum had come to pick me up from half day at school so I assume it was nursery um or something like that I was she came and picked me up, up earlier for some reason and as we got back to the house in my house at this point there was my mum my dad and I had a sister um we was locked out of the house and what I was met with and my mum was horrific my dad had hung himself from the loft in our house our family home so I remember that day so, so clearly. And then I got bullied quite a lot because I didn't have a dad. And I was called the B word because in England, they say if you, your mum and dad aren't married when you are born, you're a BS, BAS and the rest, I don't want to swear. Um, so I got bullied a lot for that. And because my mum had moved from Ireland over to Rochdale in England, we had no family all support system so it was just us alone and I think with me and my sister was easy target so I would get bullied on the streets then I would get bullied at home off either my mum or my sister 
and it was just quite traumatic. Although I've got really good memories of of my childhood, it's always outside the family home, so it was never. It was always hectic at home. If my mum and sister would be fighting, like proper physical fighting, and I'd try and split them up, and then one of them would hit me, and then the dog would bark, and the dog would... It was just, it was just horrendous, and it was something I didn't want to bring into parenthood myself. You know, um, as much as my kids argue and stuff, it's not physical. And I think I didn't realise all these knock-on effects when you're younger, you don't realise these traumatic incidents later on in life come back to haunt you, really. You know, and I wouldn't... I don't excuse my choice of, to use drugs on anything traumatic. So I wouldn't go, oh, my dad died, so I, I chose to use. No, I chose to use because everyone around me was using. So then I was, like, sick of everyone, like, gouged out, um... And I'm like, I'd sat for months and months because I, I grew up very anti-smoking, anti-drugs, was determined I wasn't going to be that girl. Um, but I, at 19, I moved out of my family home and I moved into like Drug Central and I thought I was in with the crowd because they would hide drugs in the house. So my friend had a habit and I would, they used to put them in like little paper envelopes heroin back then and hide crack in my house and I'd be just snapping bits off for her, not knowing the price or what it meant or anything, you know, risking getting in trouble with these so-called friends, um, which were quite well-known, I wouldn't say gangsters, but well-known people, you know, that push people about, would force the way into using someone's house for cooking up, chopping up, bagging up, whatever you call it. But I thought I was special, like, oh, they chose me. Um, so yeah, after months and months of being around that, I was just like, "Eff it, give me Real some more I just want to take a step back. What was it like when you lost your father? How 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 did that affect you? Like, I know you said it was a, a horrible thing, but was it something where you had to stay home from school for a while, or what was it like for you? I don't really remember the aftermath of it. I remember the day. And us running to a neighbour and, and me and my sister being put at neighbour's house. But I didn't, I felt a void when other people would talk about their mum and dads. That's what I felt. I was too young really to comprehend exactly okay. what was what. I don't know how I felt about, I can't remember how I felt about, did I miss my dad? Was I upset? You know, um, I don't know. And it's a very tricky subject with my mum. She won't let us ask any questions about it. So I've never been able to divulge into anything um, about my dad, really. His, his side of the family, which I'll go on later on in a bit. I did meet up with his brother in, in years later, but I'll get to that. So I don't really remember the staying off school, the days after or anything like that. I, I didn't I, I just... A lot of people black out stuff when it's too traumatic. Yeah, and I think it, I'd be lying if I said I felt a certain type of way for my mom or anything like that because I can't remember if I did or I didn't. You know, I think I must have been four or five. So it's because of drug use, a lot of memories are blocked out as well. You know, uh, and like so, like you said, when traumatic stuff happens, it's almost 
like everything surreal around you. Um, so yeah, I don't really remember much of it. I just remember people calling us for it, you know, and a lot of things were pointed towards my mum because he was married, you know, and it, they'd moved over from Ireland. He was from Manchester in, in England. So I just, I don't know. I really don't know. I just remembered that day looking at his legs. That's all I seen, his legs in between my mum's legs on the stairs. And I just tell him to get out the house. Um, and I, I, like, they used to have little bottles of pop in glass bottles and they do them now in plastic ones. And things like that would trigger something off in me, you know, if I'd come across one, because you get some shops that still sell stuff from when you was a child. And um, so, like, the pop bottles trigger that day off uh, for me. So, yeah, as far as feelings go, I was, I was angry. I was very angry. I remember thinking, what a coward to bring kids into the world and then take himself out of it. You know, little did I know later on, I'd be thinking the same. Oh, my sister would do the same and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I grew up quite angry towards that, you know, the fact that he'd left us. Um, he'd left my mum to deal with everything. You know, she, she'd been put, financially put out with the funeral. His family didn't speak to her. She got a lot of the blame. And I just, that's all I really remember. Like, I've never visited his grave. He's not buried in the area I live in. He, he got buried where every like lower down south in England, um, so I, I I didn't really know much about him. Or I, my mum tells me it was abusive relationship. He used to force himself on her. Um, my sister remembers a lot of my mum like chasing my dad around with a knife. But as a grown-up now, I can understand, you know, that some people might load a gun and the other person fires it. And I think that was a case for my mum in what my sister remembers. But she doesn't speak nicely about the situation, my sister. She blames my mum. You know, like, my mum works, our mum works with us and in all in Uska and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it, it, was, it was tough. It was tough growing up with our family anyway. Then having my dad taken away, you know, and my mum's family lived in Ireland. My dad's family lived in Ipswich. Um, it was miles away from being able to travel down or anything like that when I was that age or anything or thinking of it when I was a bit older, uh, up until somebody of that side of the family reached out to me, you know, and because of my name, Anuska, um, I was easy to be located, which is a blessing of Facebook. You know, some people call it a curse. For me, it, it's a connection. Um, it brought family into my life that I never had. So it was a, it was a lovely experience, I suppose. It, it, you know, what came of it in the end, like going meeting cousins I've never met, getting a little bit of background on my dad from his brother. You know, he's, he's a recovering alcoholic. Uh, there's a lot of mental health issues that my dad had um, and stuff like that. And I, I could see it pain. I could see it when going up in my sister, because she would act out. She would be going seeing counsellors and stuff. But I knew something worked quite right in, up here. But I, I never knew anything about mental health back then. You know, it was very unspoke about. Um, so this would have been nineteen eighty something. 
Um, it, yeah, it was very, but my, now I look at it in the different aspects of my dad because I'm I'm on the fence with, is it a coward way out or does it take some strength to take yourself out of the world? So I'm conflicted with that. Yeah, I mean, I always, because I've had those type of thoughts before and like you said, you kind of think about the person who actually does it, what it takes to get there. Yeah. And, and, you and have, I have, I don't know if you have to have guts to do it, but I think you do in a way because you're doing something where you don't know it's technically going to happen because nobody knows what happens after you go, you know? Yeah, of course. There and, are beliefs. I, when you get in that state of mind, you can't help but think you, people are better off without you. You know, yep. I, I, I've tried it myself because <clears throat> I was done with being an addict. You know, I'm like, is this my life forever? Am I going to be going to and from drugs getting clean going back going getting clean going back and i was just like i i always strongly said i would never do it if i brought kids into the world and i have three beautiful children but the social services it became a pattern you know with it, it, having an addiction and priority slipping and stuff like that and the, the kids i had to bring the, the kids dad with five ways at the time and ask him to come and get them and look after him for a couple of months because at that point I would have lost him. And then when he wasn't here, I got it in my head. On a come down off crack, I was like facing jail, um, living on my own. Luckily for me, I had my dog, which she sleeps with me and she gave me that comfort, that background noise, you know, jumping off the bed, just having that somebody to welcome it's, me when I came home. It's great having a pet. It's great to have a pet. Like you said, you're never alone. I have two cats. I don't know if you could see them running around behind me causing trouble. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I believe <clears throat> pets are a big help. Yeah, 100%. Very therapeutic, aren't they? So, so yeah, growing I, up, what was school like? How did you do in school? Did you get grades? Did you have friends? What was it like in school? <sighs> school, I, I enjoyed school. I didn't attend a lot, though, because group of people would just like go off for the day so I would I was more more of a sheep back then I would follow anybody and get into all sorts just because I wanted to fit in and, and everything and so I would skip school a lot with my my elder sister and her friends and stuff like that and the only exam I was put in for was business studies because I'd missed so much school you know I just didn't apply myself to it at all um, I had, but it was a, it was a good. When I look back on it, it's great memories, like the friends I had, you know, um, just the, the memories it brought. It, that skill for me was an outlet to just get away from home, you know, anywhere but home. I always sat at home wanting to belong to another family, you know. I remember looking out the window constantly in my bedroom, thinking I don't like being here at home because I was always the mediator between the keeping the peace between my mum and my sister. And while my mum worked, I was like the husband. I would clean, cook, pay her bills, walk to town, which was a good six miles, for electric, because we had used stuff by the, like electric tokens, keep electric on, and stuff like that. So I was very much growing up too quick. Um, but 
knowing my mum had no one else, and my sister was like a bit of a runaway. She was always into robbing motorbikes, getting in trouble with the police, and stuff like my stuff like came later on. So I would I would almost be the other grown up in the house. You know, my friends would knock on for me, and I'd be like, I can't come out. I've got to clean the house. My mum's at work, and um, like I would cook tea for her coming home or stuff like that. So I had a lot of responsibility at an early age. Which, you know, got me down a little bit, but also I enjoyed it too. So I, I, I kind of appreciate the fact that she gave me life skills quite early. But um, I was a bit resentful, you know, that I was one stuck at home and friends were out having fun. And, you know, I, I didn't want to let my mum down. And so I would just do the right thing. And I think that's probably why I rebelled a bit when I moved out. Because my mum was, being Irish, she's very regimented. She was brought up within 10 brothers and sisters. So um, it, it was always like, you've, you've got to get up, do this, do it. It, it was very routine, regimented. Like if you had a drink, you had to move your, your cup straight away. You know, there was no outlet or, or, or letting off on um, constantly doing something, you know, to please my mum, be it cleaning or if she was cleaning around me, I felt uneasy, like I always had to be doing something. So um, apart from Christmases, really, it's the only fond memories I have of being at home. Like Christmases were good because my mum, I never look at it different because my mum was on her own working so many jobs, you know, to keep me and my sister in, in clothes and, and we were mad because we didn't have the brands and stuff like that, where now become a parent, I realised just how much of an hard job my mum had, you know, especially after everything she'd been through. I feel like I've gone a bit off track then, but yeah, it's it, it kind of, but as soon as I got become of age to move out, I, I, I got a job straight away at 17, um, so I was working, and then I got offered a flat, like I said, and I moved into that, and I thought, I'm free, yes, I'm finally free. Little did I know, the bills, the head furnishing this house, well, the flat, um, and all that then had to come, you know. And, and like I said, my only friends who lived at that was childhood friends, but they'd all got into drugs. So I would sit, like I said, with, um, amongst these people. I'm not jumping too quickly here, am I? I would sit amongst these people, and they'd be like, it's all the time. I'm like, this is no fun, but I'd, I'd kind of really stand my ground and go, no, I'm not giving in, not giving in, not giving in. And I remember going, oh, just give me some. And it was like really arguing, saying, oh, you don't want it. It's not like passing a spliff around. I'm like, no, just let me try a bit. And I don't like fish. I remember eating tuna and really enjoying it, but literally throwing up everywhere constantly because of the effects of the heroin on me. Um, and... The two weeks of that, I was hooked. That was it started. That's when it went all wrong for me. Then you know, it was I was taking drugs into jails for twenty pound. And like, what was the first aid you ever used? <clears throat> so I smoked weed as a teen, so like fifteen. But I wasn't really a big weed smoker. And yeah, going back a little bit, my mum's friend was in and out of what we call bottom block over here. So it's like a mental facility, mental health facility, you know, people who have a breakdown or 
I've lost my mind, all stuff like that. So she would be on like Librium, diazepam, volume, as you call them, um, tomazepam, eggs like they used to be. And she would give them us, you know, while we were still at school. But this was all exciting to us. Um, and I remember trying weed and, and my sister was like, no, you're not having it. But she stood there smoking it herself. And I was like, can't be one real for you, another for me, which made me want to do it even more. Yeah, you know, you get you get told no, you want that forbidden fruit, don't you? So yeah, it kind of stops and started there. Then I remember at seventeen, because I was so tall, I'm six foot one, um, getting served with um, like Bob Bacardi at this big, and I remember having a swig of it, and I'm like, oh, what's all that? And I threw it. But then what we, me and my friend would do, it would buy like they sell these really strong lager. It's called Special Brew. And in our strange minds, we put paracetamol in it, drink it, spin round, and think we get more eggs. They make the same makes no sense. And then I remember us still being younger before the class A's came into it, going round picking mushrooms, magic mushrooms, and um, washing them and drinking them as tea, and then going out just climbing, crawling about in fields, just going like, is he eating them? And just like proper tripping. I remember the first time I did that, I had to go on first my mum. Oh, it, it was horrendous. <laughs> but yeah, I went back for more, you know. Um, and that was the first time I experienced highs. You know, um, I wasn't a big drinker at all. I've never really had issues with alcohol. Um, but then that died down for a little bit. Like I say, I moved out. Then was around heroin for four months and just I've always smoked drugs, never injected in my life, never. Um, mm-hmm. I, I got quite proud of that. And I'm like, is that something to be proud of, really? Um, but yeah, I like that warm, fuzzy feeling it gave me and it, it shut everything off. It shut my mind talking, you know, uh, because I was my worst critique, you know, like shame. What I seen in the mirror was not probably actually what I looked like. I felt fat. Now, I've always been tall, so I don't know how that would be possible. Um, but I was no confidence. Um, always needed Dutch courage. So I, if I went out, I would need LSD, ecstasy, or something to go out with. So when I moved out, I, I'd started all this. So this I'd already started with the LSD, the ecstasy. Then a few months later came the heroin. Then someone had a crack pipe in front of me in the same flat that I'm in where I've took heroin. And I'm like, oh, can I try that? And someone said to me, and he's like, if you don't try that, you'll never know what you're missing. And in hindsight, if you listen to them bloody words, you know, I wish that you don't, or you don't listen to your younger self. Um, it's like, even as a child, now, if, if you send all the, they just they, they can't deal with the word no. And I, I think I was a bit rebellious, you know, because I've been forced to grow up so quick. So I, whatever I shouldn't be doing, I were doing. So I'd be shoplifting. Got a thrill out of that, like when I walked through the shop doors and I got away. So that became a habit as well. And then it funded a habit. Like I said, I was smoking everyone for two weeks. Started to feel rough. And I'm like, what's this feeling about? Like flu-like symptoms. Not being able to sleep, getting really agitated, not being able to sit still, stand up, no self care. Um, and 
my friends, I remember the, the other friends that didn't you, is, was just looking at me in my mate in disgust because I think they came in and was scraping this pipe um, and they was looking at us in disgust and stuff like that. But I'd gone past caring about what other people think, thought of me at this point because this drug gave me this self-confidence, this false sense of courage um, to just not give a shit. And I was rapidly dropping weight, not eating proper. It wasn't long before my mum got onto it. Um, and then all my mum when I had the window. I just didn't care. I just needed my next, next fix. So like I say, people would take advantage of me, saying, take these into jails. I'd go into jails, uh, a cat air jail, and I'd be meeting people I didn't even know who they were. They'd have to put their hand up. I'd have to kiss this man. Never knew it. And I was doing all this for 20 quid. And this, I'm on about like, I've seen, I've been to jail and I've seen women come in because they've took three bags into jail, three bags of heroin. Um, and I'm taking balloons this size. Eh? And I, I just think, what, what, where was my mind at to even... Why were you come? taking it into jails? Just to not send all to these so-called friends who were hiding the drugs in the house, you know, these plastic gangsters. So they were in jail uh, and you were bringing them drugs? So their brother might have been in jail, one of the brothers or something, or one of the friends. So I'd go meet someone else, so the drugs then would get passed to the brother, you know, of the lads who were coming round to my flat. But um, it became, like, routine now. And thinking back right now, like, Aniska, what was you thinking? But the 20 quid was in me. That's all I seen, the money. So once I get back, I know I'll be all right. I've got money. I'm not going to be ill. And that's all I would think about. I wouldn't care about that. And then you know, police started kicking my doors in because they were getting aware of like people bringing stolen stuff to my house. Um, before I got into oh, the flat above me, before I smoked crack or anything, they knocked on my door and they went, can we borrow your ashtray? I'm like, yeah, you want my ashtray for what here? And then I got it, you know, obviously you need ash to smoke crack and stuff like that. Um, and then I got it and stuff like that. But, yeah, to start getting into trouble now with the police, you know, I'm installing stuff at my house. I'd be on a, pl- a, a, a prison visit and the police would be kicking my door in. Forever. I remember the first time my door went in, oh, honestly, God, I, I was so scared because all I'm here is bang, 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 and the area I live in wasn't great. And I remember going like out, oh, it covered me and my mate was in bed and I just covered myself like I'm protecting myself somewhat wearing mm-hmm. a quilt. <laughs> so uh, I, then when they went police, I was like relieved, but also scared at the same time. You know, I, I just knew no one was going to hurt me. So I felt almost safe as such, even though they were shoving me off to police station. Um, and then I would get, they would say to me, I always thought, well, not as bad as burglars and stuff like that. But the police would then say to me, if it wasn't people like you and Iska that brought stolen stuff into their house, they wouldn't be many burglars. So I'm like, I'm carrying this weight, this responsibility of all these burglars on, on my shoulders. And I'm, and I'm like, really feeling bad for it. But yeah, I continue to do it and do it and do it. You know, to a point where these people would then get aggressive for me. The, the people who were putting the stuff in my house and stuff, and, and they'd have a key. So I'd come home and something different would be there all the time. And, and I, I just got really took advantage of, I think, because I was so young and um, so impressionable. 
is that the word? That I would have done anything to please these people. Plus, he scared me at the same time. But, but I remember one of them hitting me. I thought, right, I draw a line here. So I shut the flat up and moved back home with my mum. But my habit still continued. Um, and she she would know at times, but not every time, you know, straight away. Um, and then I, my next door neighbour, she was a really good, good friend. She she was starting to get around with me then, and then I felt guilty because she got on it. And my sister had moved out of the area now, and then she'd come over to visit us in, in where, where we lived. And she'd have her own methadone now at this point. And she would kick off because the fire would be going round and no one were offering it up. And she would feel left out. And I used to say to her, it's, listen, it's not it's like dancing with the devil. You're not just going to smoke a spliff and, and, and we're missing you out. And she'd pick up my methadone bottle and she'd just swig it. And I'm like, what are you doing? No. I didn't realise at this time she had an alcohol problem as well because we lived in different areas. So she kept that hid well. So then she would batten it because I wasn't sharing. Um, and then um, my friend got a habit, which I blame myself for. My sister then got an habit, I blame myself for. So carrying that responsibility around was awful, you know. And, and now I realise you can't make, you can lead a, a horse to water, you can't make the horse drink. Yeah, I was about to say that, I mean, you shouldn't have that resting on your conscience. I mean, you should remember that you did something dumb, I guess, but they ultimately took that, you didn't force it down their throat. No, no. Um, so I moved back home and then my mum decided to go work for the NAFE. So she gave up our family home. So my sister lived like in the town, out from the town I lived in. So I ended up, it was either moving with my best friend or moving with my sister. But my sister had a child and she weren't looking after her. So I thought I'm going to move in with my sister and, and help look after my niece. Because she'd leave her in the house on her own in a pram, you know, and I'd turn up at the house and she, her mum would be gone. And I'm like, I can't leave this child. I can't. So I moved in with her and she would be drunk all the time. You couldn't rationalise with her, reason with her, tell her, even if, like, in England, we go, shut up, you dickhead. You know, like, it's in jest. And she would go, who are you call? And it was like, it was just said, it wasn't. I didn't mean it, I think, and, and then it, that would spark a fight. And then she'd come at me with knives and stuff like that. Um, but I got too much in the end. I mean, she was even physically picking. I remember it was screaming and shouting. I was in the bath. And we had a dog for 11 years, and I brought him with me when I moved in with her. Um, and she picked this dog, our dog up and literally threw it down the stairs. And I thought, I've got to get out of here. I've got to get the dog and myself out of this house. So luckily enough, I'd made friends where she lived, so I moved in with them. And I was clean now at this point. Um, and I was working in the pub, and I had a lot of responsibility. I used to stay over at the pub with the people who lived there. It was a nice, it was a ten, in the town centre, so it was a well-known pub. It was right next to the police station, all right? So when I put my key on the till, my name would come up, which is very unusual in Euska. And the police officer that would have arrested me previous would come in and I'd be like, please don't say anything, please don't say anything. Um, and I see my mates, free beer, and I got caught, so I got suspended. And I, I was with a lad then, I, I met a lad, 
and we started seeing each other. And because I, I got suspended, I thought, I'm just going to try my old dealer in the town I just moved from. And it rang. And he was really trying to talk me out of it. But my mind was set. I had tunnel vision and I was going straight to get some more heroin. And then my habit started up again. Then he got one too. Um, which it, um, I'll come into later. But I can't help but still feel responsible for this. But you'll understand that in a minute. Um, yeah, so it, it took a few weeks again. Then he'd go out burgling, grafting, robbing, doing whatever to fund our habits. You know, as far as someone, if you look at it in our world as looking after you with an addiction and a habit, it was great. You know, it, if you said that someone who never took a drug, they'd be like, no, that's not great. And he's that's an enabler, you know, but it, 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 I were the one that took the drug in front of him in the first place. He, he then took it. And then he was then risking his freedom by committing crimes, got to jail a few times. Um, and it, it, it was awful. It, it was a good time because we had just met him and stuff like that, but it was awful at the same time. Um, it didn't take long for word to go around, you know, that I was a smackhead. That word I hate, but I will use it myself because so many people have used it against me. It's like, if I say it myself, nobody can hurt me then because I've protected myself by going, yeah, I've been one, so what, I've come out the other end. So I say it out. Um, so I'm about 22 at this point now. He's 21. And I wanted by the police for not turning up at courts, shoplifting or something like that. Um, and the police had come, we'd run out of electric. So where we lived in this flat, we went staying at the flat, the other end of the block. Um, and the police turned up to arrest this girl's boyfriend who lived at the house. So my partner, Tommy, he covered me up because I had tattoos and he was scared the police would recognise me and arrest me. And um, he'd only been out of jail a month at this point. So it, we'd scored a bag, a 10 pound bag between the three of us. And he'd been up all night. So he goes to me and this girl, you finish that, just same in the tube. So when he's woke up, he's forgot what he said, he's kicking off me, but he put a bit aside for me in the morning because he'd not had, built an habit up because he'd not been out of jail that long. Um, so we could go get my money sorted because my money had not turned up or something like that. Um, and he woke up and he kicked off. So we had an argument. And he went back to the flat to use a little bit he'd put aside for me in his pocket. Very man with no electric on at this flat. So it's 12 a.m. at night in the morning. And my, my friends come in and she went, I can hear so much commotion at your flat and who's girl. I think it's them who've just moved in underneath you. So as soon as I opened the door, I re recognised these screams. Um, because he'd been beat up before, you know, like in front of me and, and I'd have to get in the mail and split it up or whatever. But this was different. Um, so, there were two Tommies, my Tommy and another Tommy. The other Tommy had got this girl addicted to tomato pan and heroin because she got money every week because she had a child. So she had that regular money coming in, but she had a boyfriend in jail. So she died of the mixture of tomato and heroin because her system wasn't, her tolerance wasn't used to it. 
So he, this other time he got pulled in for manslaughter, no further action came of it. So this particular night that we've argued, he's gone home. Um, two of his friends and two strange people, the girl's sister who died, another lad, and two lads he'd grown up with, um, come to the flat, premeditated. I'm busy. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I won't miss that. All right, go on then. No, it's okay. Sorry about that, Tim. Took me from white toilet. Right, let's just shut this up. I do apologise, all right. My background noise. There we go. So, yeah, so... Um, I need to prop you up somewhere, don't I? Oh, come on now. Jackson, you're going to have to wait, mate. I won't be long. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this particular night was different, so I heard him screaming. So starts running. My, my daughter, we had a daughter together. She was about 23 months old. Um, and when I looked up at the flax, it was only a two-storey building, so it had flat underneath, a flat on top. Um, I looked up and I could see this lad I knew and this girl like holding it like that. So as I've run up, this guy's like just whacking him on the head with his hammer. Um, and I've literally, the adrenaline, lifted him up, kicked him down the stairs. But I was wanted by the police. So I'm thinking, I want to go to hospital and see him. Looking back at it now, you knew he was lifeless then. You know, this big pool of blood. He'd been attacked by three people. One of them stayed in the car. As I'm passing, I, I know one of the people, uh, but I didn't recognise him because I'm just in a rush to get to where I can hear my boyfriend in, in trouble. Um, and he'd been, he had injuries from head to toe because he'd been battered with a, a claw hammer and a wheel brace. Um, and I ran then straight to it. I'm like, ring an ambulance, ring the police. So my friend's doing that. Um, and he's still alive at this point. Uh, so I went round to his family's house to get them to come, you know, to let them know what's going on and stuff. Um, but the police don't let me go to the hospital to take me straight to the station because I'm a key witness. And I'd got there about 20 past 12. At one o'clock in the morning, my mum would come. She'd been alerted. Um, and I was told he'd, would, he died. For that year after, was horrendous. It was absolutely horrendous because this was my soulmate, the love of my life. We just had a child not long ago, so I totally went off the rails. I'd take anything and everything to suppress feeling that feeling of, of loss, grief, pain, anger, everything. I felt everything, but I didn't want to feel nothing. So I would take every which, every tablet that would stop it. Um, benzodiazepine, the normal over here, so it's diazepam. I don't know the I know volume is diazepam in America, um, and so and any drug under the sun. And I moved in with my sister because I wanted noise. My mum said, Come move in with her, but I just wanted noise. And she had a kid, I had a kid, um, so I just went to my sister's. Well, that was a big mistake because she would still continue to batter me, uh, she would be drunk and telling me he's in the room, he's in the corner there. And um, it, it, it was just, 
it was just horrendous. And then I remember looking at my daughter and thinking, I've got to live for this kid now. And so I started seeking help. Um, I got on a script. Back then, we only had methadone. We didn't have um, what we call subutex over here. Don't know what they have in America. But they're both substitutes for heroin. Um, So I was on methadone, and I I started going to counselling, trying to get my life back on track. Moved out and sisters into my mum's. Um, my mum knew it all then everything had come out Like she knew I was struggling she knew I had an addiction and stuff like that um, so she really helped me to get back on my feet even at the funeral you know it, everything seemed surreal because I didn't go through that pain because I suppressed it so even looking back on it now it seems did that really happen that's the stuff you see on happening to someone else you know that uh, doesn't happen to you in real life, but it does, doesn't it? Um, so, yeah, I kind of changed massively as a person. Then I was closed off. I wasn't affectionate anymore. Um, I went into detox in 2002. He got killed in 2001. Um, and I missed that comfort, you know, of that, the opposite, that me and my partner, and I was in detox, and it was a six-week detox to, uh, to get off heroin and methadone. Um, I remember using the day before I went in, because I knew that would be the last time. Well, I assumed that would be the last time. Um, so I goes in. I'm in two and a half weeks. Feelings and all that come back. And this, this lad who's the life and soul of the detox, and all the girls fancied him, and he liked me, and I'm like, oh, this is that protection, that comfort I want. So I got with him. He got through it for fighting, red flag. I knew she didn't see it. No, she didn't care. Um, so she's leaving now in a taxi two and a half weeks into a detox. I've got to pay for this guy's taxi to come to the detox for me. And then we goes, I'm too ashamed to go straight back to my mum. She's looking after my little girl. So I goes to my sister's. We end up drinking this big bottle of vodka. And alarm bells didn't even start ringing then um, because I poured the vodka away the next day knowing I had to go and face my mum and kind of say, look, I've let you down and, and stuff like that. And I was, it was all I could think about. And I remember this lad I met called James. Um, I remember him looking at me like, you just poured that down the sink. But he never questioned it because it, obviously it's the, the first night I was really being together. We spent time on the detours, but not right long. Um, oh, that was one of the worst moves I could have ever made. I almost brought, no, I didn't almost, I definitely brought an abusive partner back because I didn't know he had an alcohol addiction as well, you know, so he got clean off his class A's, but still had a, a drink problem. So then I would be paying for him to drink for, to, for him to batter me. So I went through a, a domestic uh, violence relationship, domestic yeah, about relationship. Um, by this time, I'm pregnant with his child, which is something I didn't want. I don't regret my daughter, don't get me wrong. Um, but it was like I had an alien going inside me because I really despised him at this time after everything he put me through. That comfort I was looking for and seeking, I didn't get. I was so embarrassed as well because it's only a year on after my partner would die. So I walked so many miles in front of him almost. Um, 
and that wasn't his fault, you know, but uh, his family didn't want to know him. So then I was kind of stuck with him and we moved into this flat together and he would just sit in the bedroom all day watching DVDs, expecting everything to come to him uh, by this point of, I've got, I'll pick back up an habit. So my sister got a job and I didn't, she come turn up on Christmas Day with quite a lot of money. And we was like, we so excited because it was Christmas Day. It's the worst kind of time for addicts, Christmas time, because a lot of people shut down or there's no money available or stuff like that. So we were so excited and little did I know what she was doing to earn that money. Now, I don't want to go too much into that because that's her story, not mine. But I'm sure people can put two and two together with that one. So, yeah, he would, and we would just kind of take things in and give it him, and then he'd kick off, and then he'd, he'd kick off with my sister. If she got involved to stop him hitting me, like, he would more mentally abuse me because he'd sit like he was going to come at me, like, that's why I'd go like that. And, and I thought I'd rather a punch in the face than the psychological side of it. Um, and he would, like, I spat me over the head with remorse my head would be cut open and I couldn't get out the house to go to hospital or anything like it was ridiculous and because we were committing crime and my friends moved in as well were committing crime I'd been known now as a prolific shoplifter because I've been funding my habit on and off the times I've been using um so I'd gone um out to my drug place to get my prescription and then to went trying to get money so they've got caught on camera but I live right near the town centre so the police have followed CCTV right back to my flat but I'm already on a three month spending sentence for shoplifting and I've got stolen stuff again in my house and, but I'm, I'm, I've got I've volume in the system we've just scored so I've just had a pipe um, just about to have some heroin and the police just kicked the door in and They'd handcuffed me up. My mum had my younger daughter, my other daughter were playing out, and we was all going to to jet to, to, prison, uh, to the police station. It's not clicking in my head that I've got three months to spend a sentence, so no matter what, I'm going to jail. I'm not thinking like that. I'm in the police station three days, and the police said to me, If we haven't charged you by 6 a.m., and you still got to let you go. And I'm like, Yes, because I've died as it up. I'm like, I just wanted chocolate. So I'm like, when I, when, right, what I'll do is I'll leave the police station, I'll go and get some chocolate, get a taxi to mum's, get my keys, go back to my house, smoke the drugs that we've stashed in there because I didn't want any extra charges, so I just kind of stashed them as I went to the toilet. Um, and, but anyway, by that time, at 6, 26 in the morning, I was charged with handling stolen goods, so I was appearing at court the next day, that day, sorry. So... My friend got out who committed the crime, but me and my partner went to jail. And I truly believe that jail sentence saved my wife and my kids from being took away from me because things had really got so bad. We never had any food in. I was giving my kids supplement drinks the doctor were giving me because I was underweight for food. It was causing traumatic nappy rash on my young daughter. And I just think, when I look back on it, I like, God, I was so messed up. And so I truly believe, even though I lost my flat and my partner that were killed, I lost all these letters that I wanted to keep for his daughter to read when she was older. That's my only regret from going to jail there. But I truly believe jail saved my life. 
I used to go to sleep thinking of ways to get myself in jail because I was living a hell at home. And I used to think, should I just go out and smack a copper? Would that get me locked up? And I would go to bed with that, and that would make me feel a bit happier with just having that thought. So, yeah, I went to jail. My kids stayed with my mum, my two girls. Um, I got out, and I wasn't allowed to have them straight back because of obviously going to jail, being they put the kids on a register for emotional abuse because of the domestic violence they'd witnessed, and obviously my drug use with that in turn. Um, they wasn't being looked after right. Um, I know that. I, I knew it then, but I just didn't want to face it. So, yeah, goes to jail, comes out. Uh, my mum only lives in a one-bedroom flat, so I can't live with her. So, luckily enough, my sister's now living with some blind guy she took advantage of. Um, but he was such a lovely guy, and, and he, he really looked after me, and I'll never forget that. I walk around with holes in my shoes, and this, this man put a nice pair of shoes on my feet that I didn't get my feet wet. And I'll never forget like things like that. You know, the people doing nice turns, you know, when you're not so good, such a good person yourself. Um, so, yeah, I, I moved in with her and I had a lot of social services in, out, in, out. And how I managed to, my, for my kids not to go through the system, I'll never, ever know. When this thing would hit the fan, I would always, I'd put the arse would automatically get me behaving right at the right time. So I, I was almost like two people. So I was showing this vast arch of me of, of being a, a clean mum to, to social services and living a double life, obviously, with the drugs still. Um, so I nearly we went to call, we were at the, a meeting, a conference meeting at social services, and the social services were telling me to sign one child over to the paternal grandma and one over to the maternal grandma. And I was so naive and young. And this is one thing I hear about what social services do to women and the pressure they put on them. I don't know about men. I can only speak from a woman's point of view. The, that the, you know, when social service is involved and you go to a drug team, there's nothing is confidential anymore because it's all safeguarding for the children, which I totally get. And I appreciated somebody else looking out for my kids. You know, there's someone else watching all of them. So I took that and flipped it into a positive. Um, but, yeah, right up until the last minute, I was about to sign my kids away, thinking that was the right thing to do because these people are telling me to do it. And my mum rang me and she went, get both girls and get back here and let's go, you know, we'll, we'll keep them. We want to keep them together, want to keep them with you. And um, I moved in with my mum sorted my act out and she found some old foil in my pocket so she went to the drug place I went to and seen my drug worker which is a conflict of interest it's a breach of confidentiality them two speaking what they should have done which I truly believe this should be places parents can go um, but direct to somewhere else just not to my worker so I put a complaint in for it she got done for breach of confidentiality and I changed workers and stuff like that. And she was fighting to take the kids off, off me, but watching me get clean at her house. Um, and I've not been exactly honest about my last time I'd used, although I was really trying, 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 trying. They run about doing her strong tests. Now, her strong tests will show everything up put how long ago. So I'd not been completely honest. So I was literally petrified. They went, can we do an her strong test? I'm like, yeah. 
think it is because she... And her, my mum's sister went, because you answered it so confidently, we won't do it. We'll you keep kids in your care, but continue to, like, keep checking in with your drug worker and stuff like that. So it was kind of a, a bit of a wake-up call. I got clean. Um, stayed clean for a good three years. Met somebody... It was different to everyone I met before. He worked, he had a job, he had a car. He didn't sit at home in his bedroom, drinking, smoking, you know what I mean? And it was like, wow, someone normal has looked at me. Um, and we got together and, like, I had the best life ever. I remember my passport coming through the post for the first time. And I weren't even bothered I was using it. I was just happy I had one because that's what normal people have, you know, um, and I'd missed out on so much, like, driving lessons. I got a job working for um, a drug place called Intuitive Recovery. Um, it was a different way of learning about addiction from the brain. And it was an unpaid job, voluntary at first. They, they paid for my driving lessons and stuff like that. It was such a ball ache, leaving my house, having to drop my daughter off at uh, before school club, then go and drop my son off at nursery and he'd screw the place down when I left him. So I'd have this guilt trip and now using public transport and I was constantly late. But I'd leave my house at seven, will not return till seven, unpaired. Um, and then my boss decided to take me off the trial period. So then the benefits agency wouldn't pay for my childcare, which meant I would have been out of pocket if I carried on. But I thought, I'm not quitting. I'm not going to quit until you fire me. But he said to me, he said, he said, he said like one of them Russian dolls that you punch and they just keep getting back up. I'm not like, is that a compliment? I'm not sure. But I took it as well. Um, and, and yeah, it was nice, like being on the other end of it, you know, working for him. Um, so yeah, I'd stay, I would clean three or four years. Um, boredom, boredom setting them. When, as soon as I was son, and then he started, because I, I, I was at home mum. And as soon as I started school, I was left wide open with nothing to do, constantly sitting in the same chair every day, watching the same stuff on the TV. So I'd get lethargic, couldn't be bothered, no motivation, wouldn't be eating well. And I'd be like, oh, I know what will get me off my ass and get me on my feet. I'll be cooking the kids' tea and cleaning. So I think I'll get a bag of everything, troll it. If I have it for three days, the one bag, I'll be all right. What's that far about? You know, you never can control it. It controls you. And it wasn't long before I was back down that path. But I remember sneaking about with my partner and he thought we're cheating because I was going into town using drugs, coming back. So I was living two lives again. Um, and when I told him in the end I had an addiction, there were more relief. You know, he didn't understand it because he'd never been down that road. But... 13 years later, still together, you know, um, for someone who's never been in, in this predicament, he's very supportive. Yeah, he don't fully get it, but I couldn't, he couldn't ask for anything else, you know. At times, when it's really got hard, he's, he stepped in, stepped up, and stuff like that. Um, so, I remember I was on a script of Subutex, which is stops you being ill. It's a blocker as well, so you can't use on top of that. With methadone, you can have your cake and eat it. You can use heroin on top. This Subutex is a blocker as well as a pain relief. 
an opio. So I was on that for about four or five years, solid, not using, maybe the odd cocaine here and there when I go on a night out and have a couple of keys, not in work, like keys for your door. Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> not like a couple of keys. Like. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so um, I, I was sick of being on daily pickup from the chemist. So I'd gone to, I, my drug worker had said to me, you're going to come off daily pickup. So I'd gone into the chemist all happy when I'm coming off. Then I went to pick my prescription went, she went, we're going to review it again in three months. I said, I'll tell you what, stick your scripts on your ass. And I walked out. I got halfway up the road and I thought, and then he used to go, why have you just put your nose off to spite your own face? So I walked back in with my tail between my legs. She went, have you ever thought about detox? I'm like, because it was so long ago that I'd been, it was not anything in my mind and I, no one was talking about it at the time. So this was 2019. So I'm like, sign me up. Yeah, I want to go. I, so I could get off this this prescription because it used to weigh heavily on me dragging my kids to the chemist and if I didn't have money to buy my lollipop or whatever, I would feel extremely guilty. Um, so, it, it, yeah, it was the answer to all my prayers. Um, so I think it took me four weeks to get in. So I went in on the 5th of July in 2019. Three weeks after three weeks stay, I come out and I, I signed up for day up. Um, because I didn't want to leave the kids any longer. But when I got home, I couldn't handle responsibilities. It was a whole new world. I'd just leave my headphones on and constantly speak to like-minded people and ignore everyone I knew because I, I was, I'd changed. I was a different person. You know, I was feeling things and, and embracing that feeling and going to meetings. I, oh, the first meeting I went to, I thought, what is this about? I'm not coming here. I don't want to be brainwashed. But no, damn right, I needed brainwashing. I needed to change my way of thinking and I needed to change everything. So I decided after coming home for a week and doing day up, I was going to move into rehab. So I completed that, did the 12 weeks in rehab, came home, stayed clean, um, had a bit of a um, relapse on volume. Um, but since then, really, I've, I've not looked back. I've not looked back, and I I just love... I, I mean, I had to change absolutely everything. My, my circle of friends, which I didn't really have many of, if I'm honest, before I went in, and I met new ones in there. I met new people at meetings, started to get... I was like, I'm very outspoken, very loud, me, and can talk the, the socks off a donkey. But put me in a meeting, I was like this, in the corner. I thought... I can't even say a new school addict. I would not set the two words together. Even though I knew I was one, I would not say it. And um, something just clicked in me. And I thought, just put your name out there, a new school, and go a new school addict, because then you've got to follow it up then with a show. And the first time I ever did that, the way I felt when I left that meeting, oh, my God, was phenomenal. It was a different kind of high, a natural one. It was just beautiful to be around people and know that, oh, my God, they, they think crazy like me. Or I'm not the only one who thinks like this. I'm not the only one who's felt like, oh, done this, or done this, or done that. And it it became a home from home, you know, and I, and I just, I absolutely love them. I, I do. I, 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 I don't think I would be sat here today, you know, without them. Because like I said earlier, 
when the kids went with me for that two months and I was facing jail and I had that crack come down, I took a lot of tablets. I died. I had to resuscitate me. So that told me I was meant to live and never to repeat that performance. But I only realised, I only thought suicidal thoughts on a come down. So to take that away, I wouldn't be thinking like that. And, and in all honesty, I haven't. You know, I, I, I was very strong-minded on the suicide thing, um, especially after my dad and stuff like that. But I, I remember the night I took the tablets um, sat on my own and writing me letters to the kids. I'm really, really writing a shitty one for my partner at the time because we worked together. Um, and he was saying to me, oh, yeah, I think you'd be better in jail. So I was, like, quite angry and resentful towards him because he wasn't saying what I wanted to hear. He, he was saying it for the right reasons, I know, but it wasn't what I wanted to hear. The truth, we don't want to hear sometimes, do we? Um, so the well, fact sounds that like you're doing good now. Sounds like you're doing good. Yeah, like I, I, I apply a program and I work by, you know, I've got a sponsor. I don't suffer in silence, which is one thing, because I was brought up in, and I don't know if this is a thing that happens for everyone, but because I was brought up in an Irish environment, it was you, it, almost like people stone cold. So you would shut off being vulnerable and stuff like that. And that, it learned me to be vulnerable. You know, meetings learned me to get vulnerable because I, I was one of them that would sit and manifest with everything that was going on, not sharing, not reaching out, not telling anyone, expecting people around me to be mind readers. Well, we know it don't go that way. You know, you've got to open your mouth. So eventually I would get more comfortable in these meetings by just throwing aim out and going, I would just, just speak from the heart. I used to try and rehearse my share before I went and it doesn't work like that. You don't, it comes from your heart or your head. It's, it's not something that you need to practice. You know, when you open your mouth and you show your story. Um, but yeah, thank God for detox centres, supportive family and friends, rehab, and NA. Yeah, I go to any meeting, CA, NA, any meeting I can get to that is, even if I have to travel on public transport, if I can go anywhere to make sure I get drugs for a day, I can get my ass to a meeting. And that's how I see it. So I applied everything and changed. Absolutely, I've changed my house round, changed my routine, put a structured routine in place. You know, um, I kind of let that slip for the last four days, but that's because I've been poor, you know, a little bit self-care's gone out the window. But with the right medicine now from the doctor, I'm on some really anti, strong anti-inflammatories. Um, I feel like I'm getting back to a normal, my normal Anuska, you know, um, the one that's grateful and optimistic and stuff like that because I've been quite negative for being poorly and a bit agitated and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I'm in a really good place. I'm happy with the way, the way things have come on. And, you know, I always said if if I could help one person, all them years of drug use is not such a waste of time. You know, and, and when I went into the detox centre, I applied to be a peer mentor. So I went back there working giving back because I'll never forget that place. That place helped me and helped my family massively. So I went to give back and then to also keep at the forefront of my mind, this is where you could be at again, you know, so it really helped me. So, yeah, I still volunteer at that place. Um, it's, a, it's a lovely place to be at and stuff like that. It's just a lot of good's come from it. And, you know, 
it's just nice to give back. I never took my prescription for granted. You know, like someone felt it was like a God-given rule. I never, ever took that for granted. You know, like they give me a prescription, like they stop me from feeling crap. You know, I never went in and demanded this, demanded that. Or I sat in these places loads of times, hearing these people talk like this. You know, well, you've messed my scripts up. I want everything right now. And no, be appreciative of what people do for you. You know, be it a small gesture or anything. I don't give to receive either. You know, I don't mind going out my way to speak to anyone, not struggling. And I was a big part of an online on Facebook um, program at one time um, where a lot of people would turn to me because there was a man who was well-known who speaks, I don't know, I don't know what I'm mentioning his name, actually, because I don't think name-dropping is really good. Um, he, were a big, he had a big platform on Facebook and he was, recovery is the new kill, he would say. And he would say my name, so then people would get acquainted with me and would be in my inbox. So it was such a lovely thing. It got a bit overwhelming at times because a lot of people, and you felt ignorant, not responding. You know, so I, I do put myself care first and foremost. And then if you want to speak to me about whatever's going on for you or you want to question something or I can go into the detox and ask anything for you. Just, I'm not I'm, I'm not scared for anyone to jump in my inbox and ask. You know, I, I get a thrill out of that. It's nice to get to just help. It's good to give back, you know. That's you work your program, so the twelfth step is giving back. Yeah. Yeah, we have our own program, so but we have the same thing. It's our tenth step, which is the last step, but it's still giving back because that's yeah. the one thing that was genius about Bill W was he figured out one addict talking to an addict helped. Yeah. So yeah, that if you just genius, give back right? and talk yeah. to another addict, consider your service work. Keep spreading the word. Yeah. Yeah, I have one last question for you. So do you have any advice for people watching and listening? Reach out. Don't sit in your own mind. So for me, once I start dwelling on something, I will take myself out for a walk. But if that's not the case, um, pick up a phone. Don't feel like you're burning anybody with your problems because that person gets some sort of feeling of, of being there for you. You know, I, I come into it thinking, oh, what, what do you mean these numbers for? I'm never going to ring them. Use these numbers. Use anything. If anyone says ring me, if, you, if you've got a problem, you know, reach out. Get involved with services. Go to meetings. You know, even, it, like, I go to AA meetings. It's a meeting to me. I, got, I went through the steps the AA where. You know, and I'm glad I did it that way because that was the original way. So I would say, get a sponsor, speak your mind, your feelings. Don't be ashamed of the way you think and that you're the only one because I bet there's about a million thousand of us that have got the same thought. Um, and if it ever gets so bad, you know, just pick up the phone. You know, don't ever think you're not worthy of being on this planet you know we're all here for a reason and we're a long time dead so live your life like every moment you last you know I, I try and get up and uh, take value out the day you know I remember going to bed dreading waking up and going to sleep never love it you know so routine structure meetings sponsor reaching out reaching out first and foremost though because a problem shared is a problem halved. And they haven't made that saying or phrase, catchphrase up for no reason. 
it's true. It's got me to where I am. And lockdown was so hard, so, so hard. But keeping in touch, be it via Messenger, Facebook, WhatsApp, whatever you can do, you know, please, please just do it. Don't suffer in silence. Especially, especially men. Yeah, no, men, we're pig-headed sometimes, but you know, it's something that I think uh, everyone is capable of once you get to that point. But I appreciate you doing the podcast today. Yeah, there's strength in unity and there's strength in in just being vulnerable. Yep, absolutely. No, you're completely right. Oh, thank you for inviting me on. I feel really honoured to have been given this opportunity to speak to yourself. It's nice, it really is. And if we can help anyone, you know, like I say, if I can just help that one person, just know that they're not alone. You know, like-minded people are your best bet. 100%, you know, we can go to doctors and stuff, but as someone who's been through it, they know what they're talking about the most. Professional yeah. people you do need as well, but like-minded people is key. Right. It sounds like a good place to wrap it up. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, I don't know if I went off track and I just hope it was No, you did great. You did absolutely great. It, and I feel like liberated, you know, because we've we've spoke about it and, you know, like the fact that you I've been blessed to even been invited on your podcast, your video, your YouTube, your Zoom, whichever way you want to look at it. It's, it, it's That's a blessing to me, you know. Um, so I thank you so much for that. No problem. All right, sit tight for me. For everybody, okay. watch- all right, for everybody watching and listening, if you like what you saw and heard, go below and give us a like. Also, subscribe to see when we upload new videos. Also, you can check us out on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. I also suggest you check out our website, www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you'll find a ton of uh, free literature as well as other types of resources. So again, I hope you like what you saw and heard. And until next time.